You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 4th of October 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. This is Emma Nelson and a very warm welcome to today's programme. On the show, the Senate pours over the FBI's report into Judge Brett Kavanaugh. But is it worth the paper it's printed on? This confirmation process has become a national disgrace. Since my nomination in July, there's been a frenzy on the left to come up with something, anything, to block my confirmation. My guests, James Boys and Jacob Parakilas, will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including she may have danced her way to the podium, but why was Theresa May altogether less graceful when it came to giving interviews at her Conservative Party conference? We'll examine the obligations leaders are put under to talk to the press. All that, plus when fact and fiction blur. Who knew Madeleine Albright would end up the star of a fictitious political drama? We'll ask if it adds credibility, and if so, to whom? And we'll try to remember to talk about Sans Forgetica, which designed to help you remember what you're reading could well become the font of all knowledge. That's all to come on Midori House with me, Emma Nelson. And very warm welcome to Studio One. My guests joining me today are James Boys, US policy analyst and author of Clinton's War on Terror, and Jacob Parakilis, deputy head of the US and America's programme at Chatham House. Gentlemen, a very warm welcome to Studio One. Uh, our first topic will be uh, playing absolutely into your hands because it is less than a week since Judge Brett Kavanaugh gave an emotional and defiant performance in front of the Senate to defend himself against accusations that he sexually assaulted a fellow student when they were both teenagers. Since then, we've seen President Trump publicly mock the judge's accuser, Christine Blasey Ford, something which White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders insisted was entirely appropriate. How did you get home? I don't remember. How'd you get there? I don't remember. Where is the place? I don't remember. How many years ago was it? I don't know. The president was stating the facts, and frankly, facts that were included in Special Prosecutor Rachel Mitchell's report. He was stating facts that were given during Dr. Ford's testimony, and the Senate has to make a decision based on those facts and whether or not they see Judge Kavanaugh to be qualified to hold the position on the Supreme Court. Every single word Judge Kavanaugh has said has been picked apart. Every single word, second by second of his testimony, has been picked apart. Yet if anybody says anything about the accusations that have been thrown against them, that's totally off-limits and outrageous. Well, a week's a long time in Washington. Already an FBI report into the allegations is being read by the Senate to help them to decide whether to approve his appointment to America's Supreme Court. Uh, Gentlemen, just listening to that, I mean, when you hear Donald Trump speaking out loud, I mean, I've heard that several times and my jaw still hit the floor. We're in a completely new realm of judgments, decision-making, investigations now, aren't we? I think we are. Um, You know, I keep thinking about this and I keep coming back to the old idea about asking someone for a direction and the response being, well, I wouldn't start from here to where you want to get to. And quite frankly, if we were looking at this again, this is no way to run an investigation or the nomination process. Uh, When you 
consider the fact that this individual uh, faces a lifetime appointment. Uh, this guy could well be making judgments well into uh, the midpoint of the 21st century, no matter how long uh, Donald Trump serves as president, whether it's another week, another month, another term, uh, or, or indeed until uh, the end of a second term in office, his legacy will be tied up uh, with his appointments to the Supreme Court. It is in many ways the most uh, important power short of declaration of war, I think, that an American president can have. And his ability to therefore put Kavanaugh on the bench, which is looking, it must be said at this hour, I think, increasingly likely, is something which is going to uh, tilt the direction of the Supreme Court and therefore uh, the character, arguably, of American social life uh, well into uh, the midpoint of the 21st century. So with that weight on their shoulders, Jacob, what do we think is happening at the moment with these senators who have been furnished with this FBI report, which, let's face it, I mean, the ink is barely dried. It can't be a very detailed one because they were only instructed to investigate it, what, a bare five, four days ago. They've had less than a week and they have, by some reports, had significant limitations placed on who they can interview, what kind of questions they can ask, which threads they can pull on, which is not really how background investigations are normally conducted for a quite good reason. But in terms of what's happening right now, this really does come down to three senators, Jeff Flake of Arizona, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, and Susan Collins of Maine, all Republicans, uh, assuming that every Democrat votes against, which is likely but not 100% guaranteed. Um, the calculations are a little bit different. For uh, Murkowski and Collins, they both represent slightly politically idiosyncratic states. Maine may be slightly more than Alaska. Uh, they both are pro-choice in theory, although they've both voted for uh, judicial appointments in the past who would probably vote to overturn Roe versus Wade. Um, Flake is retiring. He may have other political aspirations, but he doesn't need to face the voters. And it has to be said, neither Murkowski nor Collins are facing the voters next month either. They're both up for re-election in 2020. So there are three very separate sets of calculations. And depending on how those go, you may see one or two Democrats in close re-election races in red states uh, make a different calculation as and well. When you take a step back and you look at exactly what is happening here, you see a very small select members of a highly politicised elective, which is what Jacob mm -hmm. was just explaining there, three people, looking at the evidence persuade, you know, um, effectively presented by the police, mm -hmm. a, a police investigation, to help them decide the most senior member of the judiciary. Now, anybody who's ever spent 30 seconds thinking about the separation of powers thinks this is possibly slightly murky here. Would you agree? As I sort of was trying to get across in my, my initial response, that this is no way to run something like this. If you were going to sit down and say, right, we're going to nominate uh, someone to be on the Supreme Court, uh, you would want to get, in theory at least, as much background detail as you possibly could ahead of time. Now, of course, the White House and Kavanaugh will say, well, you know, I've been through six FBI investigations previously and I've cleared all that. Um, of course, the suggestion now is that there is new information to investigate. Uh, we've had the bizarre spectacle, quite frankly, of Mitch McConnell uh, basically saying, this is ridiculous, we can't possibly stretch this out any longer, due process, etc., etc. You know, this is the guy I remind everybody who quite happily kept open a Supreme Court seat uh, during the last year of Barack Obama's presidency for overt political reasons. Uh, so clearly, uh, time constraints uh, are one thing when it's a, uh, a Democrat president nominating and another when it's a Republican. But this idea that we're going to look at, as, as Jacob rightly pointed out, a very 
very select degree of evidence which has been clearly politically directed in an attempt to try and understand events that happened over 30 years ago is, is quite remarkable. I think Jeff Flake uh, tried to walk a very fine line between voting yay on the one hand and still calling for an FBI investigation. But when that investigation is as limited as, as it clearly is going to be, I believe that all you're going to see is um, a document which merely reinforces pre-existing positions and is going to be ultimately, uh, I think, camouflaged to allow those Republicans who might be um, toying with the idea of voting uh, against to come on board and give them just enough uh, political cover uh, to approve Kavanaugh next week. Speaking of cover, I mean, what we the circumstances, Jacob, in, in which these senators are actually reading the report, um, the FBI work is never going to be made public. There is no summary. There is no press release. You're not allowed to take your phone in there when you read it. You're not allowed to make notes. And if you do, you have to leave them in the room. This is not necessarily a very transparent way of just making decisions. But already we're seeing um, lines coming out from major news outlets saying Brett Kavanaugh's chances of reaching the Supreme Court of getting a significant boost as key Republican senators are reacting positively to the results of the investigation. And it looks like... um, that ship's a little bit leaky, and, and and you know it doesn't matter what kind of ins- restrictions are imposed on the on the on the, obs- on the um, examination. This is a fundamental problem because, in principle, a background investigation should be confidential. the The work that the FBI does, asking people to speak under oath about behavior they've witnessed, what they've seen, what they've heard, that should be held very confidentially. It should be part of the review of someone for uh, any kind of security cleared or sensitive job with the federal government, but it should not be a matter of public record. The problem is that we have this extraordinary sort of set of accusations and then the FBI, which are all incredibly public, as public as it's possible to be. And then the FBI goes in search of the truth of some part of some of those accusations and the answer goes into a black box. And this process is already so both politicized and close because if the Republicans had a majority of 56 or 57 Mm -hmm. on the Senate, this wouldn't even be an issue. McConnell would give the green light to Murkowski and Flake and Collins to vote against if they thought that was in their conscience and Kavanaugh would be confirmed on a relatively straight party line vote. But because of the circumstances, we end up with this, this black box, this MacGuffin, to use a film term, which is just going to, uh, confirm everyone's pre-existing views and make the end result of this process even more contentious and even more poisonous, no matter what it is, than it would have been before. Indeed, we're, we're facing that situation, aren't we, James? It's likely that it is that Kavanaugh will be appointed to the Supreme Court um, for whatever may come in his direction in terms of accusations or indeed um, his name being wholly cleared. Um, there will, as often p- some people say, always be a smell that lingers here, won't there? Well, l- let's just game this out a little bit. Let's assume, just for the moment, that uh, the Republicans are able to garner enough votes to get him across the line, which, of course, now has been reduced greatly because of changes to the rules in the Senate with regard to confirming um, Supreme Court justices. Then let's say that there is such a public backlash against this and which galvanises the Democrats to come out. Um, if there is a shift in uh, the makeup of the uh, of the Congress after the midterm elections, uh, we might not have heard the end of uh, Judge Kavanaugh because there are already talks about uh, investigations into him even if he makes it onto the bench. It is possible, of course, to impeach uh, a Supreme Court justice technically. And one of the things that it's entirely possible the Democratic Party could be looking into is 
did Kavanaugh commit perjury during his testimony to Congress? Well, uh, without getting conspiratorial, if you look at some of the testimony that's come out and the observations from his friends, his allies, um, they're already calling into doubt about whether he's been completely truthful uh, with regard to what he said under oath for a judge to do that is one thing for a Supreme Court justice to do that is quite something else. And something well, the, really if I can just come in briefly on that, the, the problem with impeachment is that it's like the pres- impeachment of a president requires a majority in the House and then two thirds in the Senate. And what Republican senator, having voted to confirm Brett Kavanaugh, is going to six months afterwards say, you know, I changed my mind. Because then they, they're they not going to get any new votes from for the second vote to be to make it sort of a purely brutal political calculation. They're not going to win over any voters already angry at them for confirming him. And they're going to lose existing voters for voting to impeach him. So and it's just, I don't think it will happen. And simply from the point of view of, of looking at the way that, that law will be decided, if a case arises which involves the examination of a sexual offence or the reputation of a man versus a woman and evidence being placed. Um, Jacob, what will happen when Judge Kavanaugh has to speak up? Because forevermore, his name will be intrinsically linked to those kinds of stories. This is where we get into the really tricky part about the power of the Supreme Court, because the Supreme Court is in a lot of ways, the least powerful branch of government. They don't have any financial authority. They don't have an army. They don't have a police force. They don't have an intelligence agency. They don't have a tax collection agency. What they have is a broad statement in the Constitution that there will be a Supreme Court, and that's it. There's not even a law. uh, There's not even a part of the Constitution that dictates that there will be nine sitting justices. So you you have this general sense of the power of the Supreme Court to review the laws of the land and determine their constitutionality, which is based on centuries of precedent. It's not actually based on uh, very much specific language in the Constitution. And if the Supreme Court loses the the general public support, the general feeling that it is legitimate, uh, then you do have the possibility of the Congress passing and a president signing into law changes to the Supreme Court, which could include appointing additional justices. It's possible, but let's be honest, that has been tried before. We were talking about uh, uh, theoretical concepts here. You know, obviously the idea of uh, of impeaching a Supreme Court justice is is not without uh, uh, its problems. We obviously saw the Republicans uh, impeach Bill Clinton in the 1990s in the full knowledge that there was no way, for example, that sufficient numbers of Democrats were going to bolt in the uh, the Senate. But with regard to trying to alter the makeup of the Supreme Court, we saw that uh, in the uh, in the, the FDR administration, the attempt to pack the court because, as, as Jacob rightly pointed out, there is nothing in the Constitution that says there only has to be nine. Why not make it far more? We shall see what happens. Gentlemen, we must move on. It's 18.14 here in London. My guest in the studio, James Boyes, a US policy analyst, and Jacob Parakila, deputy head of the US and the Americas programme at Chatham House. Now, regardless of what she said at her party conference, it's arguably what Theresa May, May did as she headed to the podium to deliver her speech this week, which everybody will remember. A series of awkward disco moves acknowledging her disastrous dancing while on a trip to Africa was intended to lighten her image, help us recognise that she can and indeed laugh at herself. However, whatever inroads were made there were quickly ruined as Mrs May, the UK's Prime Minister, declined interviews with the full round of the national broadcasters at her party conference and it's led to a formal complaint being made by a national news editors group, in fact several national news editors, but were they justified in kicking up a fuss? Jacob, um, 
it seems that Mrs May picked and, cho- and chose who she spoke to. Uh, she declined interviews with Channel 4 News, who are arguably a very he- heavyweight broadcaster, and Channel 5, which are five o'clock tea time uh, mums and grandmas. Um, why do you think that, th- that this was done? I don't have a good answer for that. I mean, I, I don't get the sense that May is a particularly high-risk interviewee. She, aside from the, the general risk of putting the prime minister in front of a camera and on microphone at any given time, but the risk with May is that she comes across a bit repetitive and robotic, and that's already kind of baked into her public persona. There's not particular risk that she's going to say anything egregious or catastrophic. So it seems like a bit of an own goal, to be honest. I think, you know, the the story of Prime Minister gives awkward interview is a, a half day story. The prime the story Prime Minister refuses interviews angers the broadcasters and arguably changes the tenor of their uh, their approach to that particular Prime Minister in the future. Jacob has got a point, hasn't he? That actually to refuse an interview is even worse than describing gambling through a cornfield when you were younger. If anybody <laughs> is unaware of what I'm referring to, just look up what Theresa May said was the silliest thing she ever did. But Mrs May has got form here, hasn't she? When she was in the uh, election last year, she wouldn't face up to the the other leaders in, in, in debates and sent her home secretary uh, to, to do her dirty work. And subsequently, some say, she uh, politically threw under a bus a few months later. Um, what is it with Mrs May and her inability to talk? Well, I, I think we need to recognise here that Theresa May has obviously done an awful lot of interviews in the past, and and uh, by your your point in the re, in the reaction in the introduction there, that it's it was specific um, outlets that were not addressed, as I understand it. Certainly, um, when you look at Channel Four News, I think there is a perception that perhaps Jon Snow does have something of an axe to grind, and he's certainly no friend to the Prime Minister. Uh, so I think that there was clearly a political angle with regard to avoiding Channel 4. Uh, I'm not quite sure whether years from now we'll be lamenting the fact that there wasn't an interview with Channel 5 with the best will in the world to uh, our friends over there at uh, at ITN. But I think that when you consider um, that we see this on, a, on a quite a regular basis now, you know, we see in the United States Donald Trump very much choosing who he's going to give interviews to with obviously a, a focus upon Fox News. Uh, the idea that there is going to be a selection about which outlets you're going to address. Um, it is a bit of a problematic um, uh, course of action, I think, here to bring that sort of an American approach to uh, the United Kingdom. I think that that does reflect a concept that what happens in the US eventually moves over here. But I think she's very much trying to uh, package the image which she's sending out and is trying arguably to give interviews to uh, only those, uh, uh, those carriers which are going to be perhaps sympathetic, perhaps more to Sky and to the BBC... Uh, and to the detriment of those uh, journalists, which perhaps she thinks might be less sympathetic. It's funny to try and work out why this happened. One, she may well have been running out of time. You never know. Um, she may, Jacob, or her team may wholly underestimate the fact that to deliver an interview to someone isn't to deliver an interview to a news outlet or to a journalist. It is to actually speak to your audience or to your to your viewers' audiences. And do you think that... Theresa May's press machine and indeed leaders nowadays actually genuinely think about the audience they're pitching to or as is perhaps in the case with Donald Trump he just doesn't like the journalist. I think it's really hard to completely disaggregate the particular relationship between a journalist, a channel, the producers, the press officers in a politician's uh, employ, the politician themselves because you don't speak 
directly to the audience. Arguably, you do that through Twitter or other mechanisms. But when you're speaking to the press, it's never direct communication to the audience. It's always mediated by the producer, the presenter, all of that. Um, so I think you can't completely take those two things apart from each other. Um, and it is hard from a politician's perspective if you think you've been treated unfairly, if you think you've been asked leading or unfair or otherwise surprise unpleasant questions um, to look past that and see the audience uh, and see the, the, the benefit of speaking to that audience. Um, but the precise degree to that, I, I couldn't speculate within Theresa May's own shop. It's clear that Trump, for his part, has a very different approach to it and is completely shameless in picking and choosing and then also using Twitter to uh, aggressively attack journalists that he thinks has, have treated him unfairly. I was quite surprised when I heard about this refusal to do interviews, not least because it was Theresa May herself who, appearing in front of the United Nations last week, said that she supported freedom of the press and she supported anybody's right to, to say what they like within the context of the press. Um, it's just one of those things that you, you just think this is... This is great in so many ways insofar as it shows up the solidarity of broadcasters. When Donald Trump kicks off against the press, the press react in, in a pack. And the same thing has happened here. Yeah, and, and I think that what you're increasingly seeing, and again, building upon that question and, and, and your former one with regard to the market share and the market audience, you know, what you've seen in the US is this idea of uh, very much people getting driven into specific camps, you know. So who is watching which channel uh, very much depends to an extent upon political outlets. You know, I think we can clearly see uh, that certain broadcasters, both in this country and certainly in the United States, uh, have, a, uh, have a political axe to grind or a political... Uh, uh, mission to to advocate that obviously has to be slightly different in this country because of press broadcasting regulations. But I think most people would agree that certain outlets have got certain political biases, and that's certainly I think uh, something which Theresa May is is playing to with regard to this. Even though, as you rightly point out, it does appear to completely contradict uh, the fine words that she came out with at the UN recently. You're listening to Midori House with me, Emma Nelson, James Boys, and Jacob Parakilis are my guests today. Listening because in a moment, three former secretaries of state are set to guest star in the CBS drama Madam Secretary. Are we blurring the lines between fiction and fact too far? Stay with us. The pendulum is a-swinging, and these days it's the city of Paris that's turning heads with retail innovation. Monocle Films travel to the 16th arrondissement to sample Le Beau Marché's new addition to La Grande Épicerie family. Food is a lot of memory. It's memory with your mother, with your grandmother. Food is uh, and a pleasure. You have to find this uh, game with a product. I try in the architecture to have this sensibility. For a filmic tour of La Grande Épicerie, Rive Droite, head to monocle.com. And if you've only just joined us, a very warm welcome back. This is Midori House on Monocle 24. I'm Emma Nelson. Still with me in the studio, Jacob Parakilis and James Boys. And when is it OK for a real-life character to pop up in a fictional drama? Madeleine Albright, the former US Secretary of State, is to appear in the American drama Madam Secretary. Her role is to give advice, and stay with me if you can, on screen, to her fictional counterpart, Tia Leone. She says she did it to have a good time. But is it a little too confusing for our own good? 
good? And is it blurring boundaries a little too much? Well, um, let's start with you, um, James. Madeleine Albright has said this is a very good way of helping people understand some of the more complex issues in our society um, by trying to explain what happens in the machinations of US government. Uh, why not get a fictitious Secretary of State, Tia Leone, to ask the real thing? Which will be scripted. Well, indeed. Um, I think what is interesting is that over the last 19 years, certainly, if not beyond, we have seen uh, increasing moves by American television makers to make um, their output more realistic. Uh, And I used the exact terminology of 19 years because that's when the West Wing began broadcasting in the United States. Um, That was referred to as a 43-minute civics lesson on a weekly basis by Aaron Sorkin. And in that, you saw repeatedly uh, the dramatization of events that had happened uh, more often than not under Bill Clinton, but certainly under uh, Reagan and uh, and other presidents. So what we're seeing now, I think, is a natural uh, step beyond that, which is to bring real-life politicians onto the shows to continue that narrative. But, of course, this has precedent beyond that. If you go back to the the late 80s and early 1990s, for example, we had the ridiculous episode uh, of of the Bush administration, George H.W. Bush and Dan Quayle, taking issue with with Murphy Brown, for example, and the idea that this was a a character on American television who gasped, shock horror, had a marriage, uh, a child out of wedlock, and this was seen to be completely contrary to Republican family values. Uh, then, of course, uh, Bush got into a fight with, with Homer Simpson uh, and ended up being incorporated into the show. So we're seeing the, the latest in a long line of, uh, of politicians uh, engaging and being engaged, sometimes in a, a sense of mockery, uh, by American television. So I think this is a, just a healthy and latest uh, incarnation of this. Well, let's not forget Ronald Reagan's original job before he's headed to the White <laughs> House. I mean, it's not particularly beyond the realms of fantasy and who knows what's happening in the White House right now. But, uh, Jacob, one of the things that people have been kicking up a fight about here in the United Kingdom is a, is a series called The Bodyguard, which has had gazillions of viewers and is this edge of your street um, uh, seat thriller about the Home Secretary uh, being the victim of a terrorist plot and this ridiculously sexy bodyguard who wanders around sulking. Um, I haven't actually watched it, but part of the things that people are getting cross about is the fact that they are using proper BBC reporters to do the inserts to sort of people give people up to date. But these aren't just any reporters. These are the absolute heavyweights, the political editor, the main political interviewer. And some people have said, that's not right. That's crossing over the line too far. What do you think? I, I, I can't really work up too much rage about it, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I'm, look, there's always a tension in television when you're doing a realistic but fictionalized world uh, where, you, you know, where is the line? Because you're you're showing the workings of the U.S. government with a fictional president, a fictional secretary of state, a fictional everyone, but it clearly is within our world. Well, do you then refer to the Reagan administration? Did Ronald Reagan exist within the world? The, the West Wing had to do a lot of gymnastics to kind of retroactively justify its own version of the world. And, and the longer a series runs, the more difficult it is to sort of maintain that fiction, which is parallel to ours. But at the same time different. So I think of it more as a dramatic problem, really, than an ethical one. I I don't really have that much of a problem with uh, journalists appearing in fictional programs. It reminds me of the uh, Halloween moment in E.T., 
when they all dress up and someone came as a character from Star Wars and suddenly the world of cinema exploded because they couldn't quite work out that actually cinema was referring to itself. It all got a bit meta and quite good fun. Anyway, uh, we don't really care too much about whether BBC journalists are rocking up in big uh, in big blockbuster things. But Madeleine Albright, well, I think we'll look to see what she's up to. She, she sounds like she had a good time. Finally, researchers in Australia have released a new font this week that promises promises to be truly unforgettable. Well, we're fans of typography here at Midori House, but this time we do mean it quite literally because Sans Forgetica was developed by Melbourne's RMIT University and it promises to be the font of all knowledge, if you'll pardon the pun, because it is deliberately difficult to read with slants and gaps through the lettering. It's intended to make you concentrate and to remember what you're reading. Um, James, I've seen it. It made my head spin. What do you think of it? Oh, it's quite remarkable, isn't it? The idea that a specific font is going to have some degree of uh, impact upon your ability to absorb it uh, is certainly something which I'm sure a lot of people uh, will will try and struggle to get their heads around, quite frankly. I certainly am starting to think, I wish my latest book had been published with this, because that hopefully will make it even more memorable, quite well, frankly. The whole uh, pun, pun totally accepted. Um, uh, one thing that actually was meant in this, uh, in this font, um, Jacob, was that the, the creators said that they didn't didn't want a whole book to be published in it. This was intended for small bursts of, of text to be remembered, to be remembered, and that made me think: Are we actually reading too much, and should we read less but of better quality? It's a bit like a diet. We've definitely changed how we read. I mean, I can only speak for myself here, really, but I I read an enormous amount every day, but it's incredibly granular. It's tweets, it's short articles, it's emails. It's not. I I struggle more than I used to, to get through a long paper or a book. And I I don't think I'm alone in that. So if the idea of this is to make us sort of slow down and focus on a specific piece of text, that's great. The flip side, of course, is that if it makes us slower and makes reading more of an effort, it'll make it even harder for us to make it through a long, weighty piece of writing. What we won't bother. I think it'll just make it more difficult to do. It'll be harder to maintain focus. So I I, I think it might have very specific uses, but I doubt we're going to see lots of things published. No, and if they are, perhaps one day your book will be published, James. Who knows? That brings us to the end of today's programme. My thanks to James Boys and Jacob Parakilis. Thank you for joining us here at Midori House. And thanks to to our producer, Ben Ryland, researchers Barbara Maimone, and our studio manager, Christy Evans. More music follows, and then at 1900, it's The Urbanist raging through our cities. And we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200. For now, though, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening.